0: And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord
1: All right, good morning. Hey, if you are a guest with us, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is uh, honestly a joy, more than that, an honor to be with you. Thank you for joining us. It means a lot. You're not just a number. You're a person. You're an image bearer. You're a face. And so we would love to get to know you more. But welcome um, as we jump into our parable series today. Jump into it, meaning we're finishing it up today. This is the last one. Um, We have been going through this for a couple months, and we are wrapping it today. And as I was thinking about this text that you just heard read from Gerald, um, it took me back to when I was about 19 years old and I got my first cell phone plan. Um, Cell phones were a little bit newer um, back when I was 19 years old. And here's the deal. At 18, I got my first cell phone and it was a Nokia 5180. And if any of you remember that, it's basically this uh, little brick that had a green screen and some black lettering on it, right? And if I wanted to add minutes to this phone, I had to go to the local mall and purchase a little card to add minutes. Like, that's literally what happened. I didn't need them. I didn't need the phone, but I wanted to fit in. But then at 19, I got a plan. This was amazing. Um, It was also around the time that I started uh, trying to pursue Laura and talk with her at night and uh, keep this relationship going. And so this plan I had, I remember I just signed up, signed the contract, all that good stuff. I think it had about 200 minutes a month but unlimited texts—I'm pretty sure I'd get away with that plan today. But it was like $19. That was the—that was the plan. And uh, I remember after the first month, I got a bill. I got a bill, right, for $700. Because I didn't know about something called roaming and overages. What 19-year-old does, right? I just signed up for this so quickly because it was something that I wanted, and I didn't really think about it, and then I I had to basically pay a million dollars to pay off that that $700 bill at 19 years old. Here's the deal. We live in a quick-to-jump-in, but at the same time, incredibly low-commitment society, and we probably know this. This is a reality that we're all living in. This applies from everything to our jobs, to our relationships, to everything in between. On the one hand, we want immediate gratification. And on the other hand, we don't want to be locked in. We're cautious. Today, as we wrap up this series, this is a hard text. I just want to say that at the very beginning. We're wrapping up with a bang. Um, Many would consider these the hardest words of Jesus. But here's the deal. We didn't lose anybody at the 9 AM. So I'm confident we're all going to make it through this together. But with hard text can come this temptation to try to lighten it up, to try to water it down a bit, to try to maybe soften it. Well, here's what maybe Jesus really meant, and to not really look at what Jesus really said. But we're not going to do that today because that doesn't serve any of us well. In fact, all that does is placate us and take us further away from the truth instead of actually drawing us closer to the truth and what God actually wants to put in front of us because he actually loves us and he cares about us. And so while this passage is challenging, it's also incredibly loving, and I want you to see that. No matter who you are, no matter what you come in with, where you're exploring the faith, you've been a Christian for years, it's so loving. How is it loving? Because God loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you in a place of confusion. He's actually a very truth-telling God. And so that's what we're going to see in this. But before we jump in, let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. I pray that you'd speak to us wherever our hearts are today, whatever we come in with. God, I pray mostly that you would allow us to be receptive and not immediately just push back on what you say, Jesus. Would we see that everything you call us to in this passage is under the umbrella of grace? And so be with us now as we walk through this. In your name, amen. All right, here we go. Starting in verse 25, Jesus says this, or it says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, Now at this point in Jesus' ministry, he has essentially become three things to a lot of people, to the crowds. He is a food pantry, he is a doctor, and he is a scholar. Jesus is essentially the original influencer, like seriously. Um, people heard about him. They heard about what he was doing. He's doing miracles. He's feeding 5,000 people, which is really 15,000 people. And he's saying things that no one else has ever said. And he's incredibly countercultural. We want to get a glimpse of Jesus. And so they come from all over and they didn't have cars. So they would walk and they would ride horses and donkeys just to get a glimpse and to hear from this one called Jesus, one that actually claims to be the very son of God. Big claim. so there was a large crowd that had formed and we know that earlier in this chapter jesus has come to eat dinner at a really prominent religious leaders home essentially it would be like eating dinner with a senator or maybe the secretary of state and during this time if you were an onlooker you could gather outside of the home kind of open air or you could even come inside the home and stand up against the walls just to watch to listen right i don't recommend that today but that's what happened back then And as Jesus sees this crowd forming and he knows that so many consider him to be something he's actually not, he says these words. He knows that many are following, but they have no idea the cost of actually following him, what this really means. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple This is the very definition of coming in hot, right? Like, whoa, this is intense. And before you uh, start sending texts to your uh, spouse, to your brother, to your sister, to your mother, to your father, hey, I hate you in the name of the Lord. um, Let's talk about what this actually means, right? Right. Because this doesn't make sense on the surface. This is Jesus who talks about loving your enemy. This is God who put families into place, who put marriages together. So what in the world does he mean by using this incredibly intense language of hate? To hate the people closest to me. Is that what you're really asking me to do, Jesus? Well, not exactly. You see, this is why context is so important. And if you actually look at the Greek and the Hebrew and the way that this is written, although in some of our translations we get this word hate, that's not actually the best representation of what Jesus means here. In fact, in Matthew 10, Jesus says something similar, and we actually get to the heart of it. 1037, whoever loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This isn't about hate in the way that we think about hate. This is about more or less. This is about a prioritization of Jesus in your life. It's about a reorientation of our hearts around him first and foremost. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is to follow me. You must love me more than anything and anyone. That's what I'm calling you to And people would have been stunned to hear this (laughs) like silence falls in the room. These are Jesus' first words in Luke on discipleship. If you want to be my disciple, meaning, and here's just a simple definition, someone who seeks to follow, love, serve, and obey Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit first, you need to count the cost. Now, let me just name name, something what Jesus is doing here. This is not a formula for developing a large following not it. And at the same time, developing a large following for the sake of developing a large following is not Jesus' purpose. It's not his point. He doesn't want numbers. He wants hearts. He wants to get to the very heart of us. In fact, he goes even a step further. In verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross. Now, we sometimes joke about this. I'm just going to say this, and I know this is being recorded, so Jean and Dr. Teague, if you hear this, I love my in-laws, right? Absolutely love them. But some of you, if I were to talk to you about your in-laws, and maybe you have a bit of a challenging relationship there, this is a term that gets used, especially when they come to visit. I guess this is just my cross to bear this week, right? Like, this is a term we throw around kind of flippantly, this idea of a cross to bear. This is something difficult that I'm going to have to face. But for the person sitting in this room with Jesus, when he says this, they know exactly what this means. This cross, this cruel cross beam this was an instrument of public shame, torture, and execution. They watched this happen to slaves and criminals in their culture, in their society. Carrying this beam meant that you were condemned and required to take it to the location of your execution. So what Jesus is saying here, not to water it down, is this radical statement. Would you be willing to lay down your very life for me. Count the cost. Now, it also says bear your own cross, which is important. Hear this. Your parents cannot bear this cross for you. Your spouse cannot bear this cross for you. Your grandparents, who never missed a Sunday at First Baptist Church of, insert any city in America, cannot bear this cross for you. This is a faith and deeply intimate relationship that you have to own, that you have to enter into. Would you bear your own cross in following me? Now, it's very unlikely that any of us will be required to give our actual life for what we believe, for our faith. Not impossible, but as we stand right now in this country, very unlikely. But that is not true for the listeners here. Jesus knew that in following him, many would be required to give up their very life. They would be persecuted. They would be tortured. They would be imprisoned. Jesus is talking amongst some of his greatest and closest friends here, and he knows their future. He knows that in standing with him, making him the very center of their life, counting the cost and saying, yes, I stand with you, that Thomas, Luke, Philip, Bartholomew, Simon, Thaddeus, Matthias, Paul, Peter, James, Matthew, Mark would all suffer a martyr's death for the sake of knowing and standing with Jesus. This was real. And this may not be as uh, close to home for us, but for many believers in other countries today, they are counting the cost of actually following Jesus. They're meeting in churches today, but those churches are underground, they're hidden. And they know that if somebody finds out that they are worshiping Jesus, it could literally cost them their very life. So, although this may not hit home in exactly the same way, we cannot minimize what Jesus is saying here, nor should we. Count the cost. This is incredibly difficult. It's heavy already, right? You're like, oh my goodness. Like this was an interesting Sunday to show up for. It's hard for us to grasp. Here's what I want to say. We live in a market-driven society. We live in a society that's all about selling. And Christianity is not immune to this. In fact, it's often influenced by it. I like this quote. I wish it wasn't true, but I think it is by Charles Spurgeon. He says, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present time has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. You see, there's this westernized view of Christianity that's uh, gained incredible traction for the sake of filling up churches, keeping you in seats, overflowing tithe plates. All that good stuff and keeping people engaged and it falls right in line with how our society operates. It's all about low cost and low risk because that's what we love. It's all about a low commitment, high gratification, because this kind of faith sells a faith that says following Jesus is not only easy, but we've actually found a way to make it cool. And it comes with the promise of incredible prosperity that if we just pray hard enough, if we just believe enough, ask enough, sing loud enough, raise our hands high enough, and manifest enough good feelings, we'll get everything that we ever wanted. God's going to give you every single thing you ever hoped for. This low cost, low risk, high reward. Tell this gospel to the mom or dad who loses a child. Tell this gospel to the person in a third world country today, struggling just to make it another day. Tell this to a person whose dreams have been absolutely dashed when they get a diagnosis of an incurable disease. Tell this to every single person in a country where Christianity is not allowed suffering persecution today or imprisoned today. Here's the problem with this low cost, low risk Christianity being sold to the masses. As we speak, it's not the Christianity of the Bible. You will find this nowhere in scripture. This kind of gospel, a watered down version built on prosperity is a house of cards waiting to collapse whenever life takes a wrong turn and it inevitably will at times and in seasons and no wonder so many people are walking away from the faith because our westernized culture has watered it down and it sold us to the masses and it's, it's bringing the Kool-Aid and it's having us drink it and we buy it and Jesus is saying enough is enough. That's not truth Here's the truth. Count the cost. This type of gospel is unloving. It's unkind. It's the antithesis of the gospel of Jesus. Let's just name it. It is. What Jesus is inviting us into isn't some flippant transaction. It is at the heart a covenantal committed relationship on both sides With Jesus, there's both a call and a cost, and there are really two sides of this reality. And so to bring this home, Jesus shares two short parables. Here's the first one. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? All right, how much do I need to build the tower? What supplies do I need? What workers do I need? Whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see him begin to mock him, saying, Ah, look at that man. He began to build and was not able to finish. It's kind of kind of funny here. It's like, oh, the tower's half done. Didn't really think about it. Just kind of got busy doing it or jumped into it, but didn't necessarily count the cost. Now, we probably wouldn't buy a house, buy a car, marry someone. Um, now, you might buy a cell phone plan like me, um, but without carefully considering these decisions, we like to make sure things line up. We like to know the details. We're very careful and cautious. And so what Jesus is literally challenging us all two here is he is saying, hey, why would we make a split second decision on the most important decision in our lives to follow him or not? In this example, the builder, Jesus is literally asking, (laughs) this example of the builder, Jesus is literally asking us to weigh the cost of following him before we start to follow him. Now, going back to what it said in verse 26, he essentially brings up three areas where he wants us to think about this, where he wants us to process this family, self-interest and possessions. Do I mean more to you? Am I worth more to you? Would you be willing to hand over, give up these things that you hold so dearly and often so tightly for my sake? Now, we can overestimate the cost here, and let me tell you what I mean by that. Jesus isn't saying that we need to know everything that God is ever going to ask of us our entire lives in a green advance to become true believers. What Jesus is asking for us to do is to consider the amount this commitment to him could cost. What could it cost? Here are a few examples. Here's one when it comes to family. We talked about this Thursday night, Faith at Home Parenting. We talked about how sometimes we, and by we, I mean I and a lot of us, have a propensity or a tendency to actually make the child the center of our lives and our family. And what ends up happening is we try to meet the child's every need and desire, and so we uh, move around finances, we um, build out our schedule, our calendar, our travel, everything around the child. And essentially we have the child and then we have parents and then we have God on the outside sometimes speaking in. But what ends up happening is even though we might not be intentionally trying to do this is we start to participate in child worship and they become this idol to us. And so what would it look like to instead hear what Jesus is saying when he says, I need to be at the center. I need parents. I need to be at the center of your life so that I can actually pour into you and you can pour into them. Are we willing to disappoint our kids sometimes and not give them every single thing that they desire because we know that that might actually not be good for them and placating them that we actually need to sacrifice, be generous, be selfless, show up to community and that might not fit their agenda. Are we okay with that? Students, are you willing to potentially disappoint your parents if God calls you to something that might not even meet your parents' agenda? This is interesting. A recent study of Christian college students, graduates in the United States, disclosed that the single most important reason why young people stated that they did not consider full-time Christian work as a possible career was the objection of their Christian parents who largely felt that their children weren't earning enough money. It makes sense. I get it. But how tragic. Students, if God calls you to something, if he calls you to be a pastor, if he calls you to be in ministry, whatever he might call you to, would you be willing to say yes because Jesus, you're at the center of my life. You're worth more. I love you more. Even if it's not the popular decision. Students, would you be willing to, consent to continue worshiping and following Jesus even if no one else in your family does? No one else in your circle of friends? To say yes, you are worth more. I'm counting the cost. For all of us parents, our kids need us to love Jesus more than them. Kids, your parents need you to love Jesus more than them. Our spouses need us to be more committed to Jesus than we are to them. Our neighbors, our friends, they need us to love Jesus more than them. Why? Because in doing so, we're actually doing the most loving thing for them. Instead of them being at the center, which will inevitably crush them under the weight Instead, with Christ at the center, the love that you show won't simply be some man-made form of affection, but it will actually begin to be, although imperfectly, a selfless, sacrificial reflection of Christ himself. Count the cost. Now, what about our possessions? And then this one gets tough, because the more you have, the harder this is. We know this. We went through the parable of the rich young man. He had a lot. He comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to follow you? And eventually Jesus says... Go give away all your possessions and come back and follow me. And he walks away dismayed because he had so much. He counted the costs and he determined it just wasn't worth it. Would we reorient the way that we even think about what we have? This is what Jesus is calling us to, not, not as our own, something I hold tightly, but something I hold loosely, realizing that all of this belongs to you, God, and, and you can use it however you see fit. And when you call me to be generous, I'm going to be generous, even if that means sacrifice. This is all ultimately yours, and so I'm going to hold all of these things loosely. And then he gets to self-interest, and this is a tough one, too, that hits us right in the heart. If anyone comes to me and doesn't see his life as less, it brings up this idea that what if the American dream of a large house, two and a half kids, a nice car, the boat, the vacation home, the overflowing bank account, a great title at work, well, what if Jesus calls you to something else? What if Jesus actually asks you to abandon those dreams or dreams like it and take up whatever he puts in front of you? Would you be okay with that? And even if you're not initially okay with it, (laughs) would you come to a place of being able to say, Jesus, you're worth more. You're worth more. This is tough. I'm gonna tell you this is tough. This is not easy, but I sense that you're calling me to this. Yeah, it might be radical. Others might not understand it. It might not make sense. It might not be comfortable, but I know you're calling me to this and I'm not walking away from you. For some, you know the story all too well. Things have not played out the way that you thought they would play out in your life. Some of you came from broken homes. You didn't expect the, the hardship and the abuse and the things that you saw. Some of you came from great homes and then relationships became broken. Some of you had dreams that got shattered. Some of you feel like you just struggle from week to week and things are chaos and it's all over the place and sometimes you have a hard time knowing which way is up. And God gets that and he sees your heart and he knows that. And he's saying, even when things go sideways, even when things get tough, would you know that I'm with you? And would you not leave? Would you not walk away? Would we be like Peter when all the crowd leaves and Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, do you want to go too? And what does Peter say? He says, where else would I go? You hold the words of eternal life. You're right. Okay, I think I get it. If I follow Jesus, life is going to be pretty bad and it's going to be hard and I need to be cool with it that that's, that's kind of what you're saying. Like, is that what you're getting at? No, no, don't hear that. I know that's what that can seem like. This is not about rules. This is about relationship. This is not about asking for hardship and bringing it on you like old school missionaries who would literally go into remote places seeking to be martyred because they thought that it would make them better followers of Jesus. Jesus is like, no, that is not it. This isn't about you inviting hardship. This is about this reorientation of your heart in aligning it with mine and saying you're worth more. Counting the cost is not about accepting some promise of a difficult life. I have no idea what your life's going to look like in the future. Neither do you. I don't know what God's going to ask of you and what he's not. I know it'll be worth it. But what does it mean to count the cost? It's about being resolved that no matter what comes in the good or the bad, I'm willing to hold everything in my life more loosely, trusting God with it while holding on to Jesus firmly. And as you do, I love it, Jesus promises time and time again, I will meet you there. I will meet your needs. I will not leave you shamed and wanting. I'm a good, generous, loving Savior. But before you follow and along the way, count the cost. And with this, Jesus shares one final parable, the other side of the coin. He says, on what king or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. The idea here is two people or two kingdoms coming to war together. And a lot of times these would happen in a valley. And so imagine two armies coming up over a hill and all of a sudden one king says, oh my goodness, I thought 10,000 would be enough. They have 20,000. This isn't going to work out, right? That's the picture here. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, what's actually happening here? Well, the first parable, it seems like the worst thing that's gonna happen is people are gonna make fun of you in town because you couldn't finish a building project. But in this parable, the stakes get much higher. We have this king who's going to battle. And he's overestimated his army's ability. Now, what happens next is often misunderstood because what it looks like is that the king sends a representative to negotiate a peace treaty and then both armies just kind of go back home. That's not it at all. Realizing that so many lives are gonna be lost and his very own life included. In this context, at this time, this would not have meant a negotiation. Terms of peace literally meant an expression for unconditional surrender hey, we're not going to make it. We can't win this battle. I'm going to send you to let them know, please don't destroy us. We surrender. We surrender. So while the first parable asks us to count the cost of discipleship, in this parable, Jesus is literally asking us if we can really afford the cost of not following him. And that's the big idea that he gives us in this text. The call to follow Jesus is great. The cost of not following even greater. This isn't meant to scare us. It's not meant to freak us out. It's meant to be honest with us because Jesus doesn't want to leave us confused. And no, we don't like to talk about these things. Um, these are not conversations that we like to have. The reality that we would rather not face. This idea of an eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell, but that is what the Bible talks about. And we're not going to water it down and we're not going to ignore it and we're not going to avoid it here. This is why we can't afford to water down the gospel. This is why the stakes, because the stakes are so high. When Jesus says you must renounce yourself, what he's saying is pride isn't gonna work here. You must come to the realization, like the king in the parable, that you don't have the ability to win this battle. You don't have the ability to conquer your sins, your relationships that you hold so valuable, they can't save you. Your possessions won't be able to save you. Your self-interest won't be able to save you. And the only hope is unconditional surrender. How is this gracious? (laughs) How are these words of Jesus gracious? Well, in two ways. One, Jesus wants your heart, he doesn't want your work. He's not asking you to earn anything. He's not asking you to deserve anything here. He's looking for your heart, your affections, your loyalty, your prioritization. Also, if he really is who he says he is, the way, the truth, and the life, he's being incredibly gracious because he's being incredibly truthful. Instead of allowing us to back up our lives and fall off a crumbling cliff filled with delusion and cultural lies, he wants to offer us something better. That's what we see here. And along the way, let's just be honest, we're not always going to prioritize him. Every day we struggle with this. We wrestle with this. It's hard. There are competing priorities. All of this is true. And yes, he's incredibly gracious and he's incredibly forgiving and he's long-suffering and he's patient, but that does not mean he doesn't want your heart any less and he doesn't want 10%. He doesn't want 50%. He wants all of it because he knows that's good for you and it's glorifying to him. That's what he's after. He's not about rules. He's about a relationship that he offers each and every one of us. Jesus speaks some hard words today in this passage. And we all feel it, myself included. But here's the beautiful, incomparable, beating heart of the gospel that drives them because all communication takes place in context. What does Jesus say? Why does He say it? Where is He going here? Here's where Jesus is going, even in saying these words He's going to Jerusalem and He's taking us with Him. For what? to be fully committed to you, to save you, to forgive you, to make you his own. And he wasn't going to let anything or anyone else get in the way of that. The same Jesus that calls you to bear your own cross and following him actually bears your cross first and foremost. He takes all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your love of possessions, all of your child worship, all of these things, your self-interest, and he takes the cross beam and he walks to his place of execution, not out of demand, but out of of sacrificial love for you, with you in mind. That's the heartbeat of the gospel that drives this. That's what Jesus is doing here. And in bearing this weight as a willing sacrifice, he shows you and he shows me in no uncertain terms that this love, this sacrifice, I've counted the cost and this is for you. He was fully committed to saving you where he leads and then he's bringing us into a better, lasting, eternal reality, a living hope. He's leading us away from the brokenness, away from the lies, away from the chaos, away from the watered down, falsely sold, faith in his love he's leading us back home he's trying to lead us back home Jesus does not want to take something from you in his kindness in his very beating heart he wants to give something better to you he doesn't want to feed you the candy the world has to offer he wants to give you the whole meal I've been coming back to this story, this we're going to end with, um, over and over and over again. I read this to Silas not too long ago, and I was thinking about this kind of God, this kind of Jesus who calls us to follow him, and it's not easy, and we need to count the cost, but also in his love is offering us a place in the family. In his love is offering us to bring us back home. And in the Jesus Storybook Bible, there's an amazing story, and it's called Operation No More Tears, and it hits home at this. This is. Jesus, this is the Father who's saying, count the cost, but in doing so, if you follow me, what I offer you is so much better. God was going to mend his broken world, so he showed Isaiah his secret rescue plan, Operation No More Tears. And this is the message God gave. Isaiah was like a letter God wrote to his children. Dear little flock, you're always wandering away from me like sheep in an open field. And you have always been running away from me. And now you're lost. And you can't find your way back. Hear this. But I can't stop loving you. I will come to find you. So I'm sending you a shepherd to look after you and to love you, to carry you home to me. You've been stumbling around like people in the dark. But in the darkness, a bright light, it shines And it will chase away the shadows like sunshine. Yes, somebody is going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. He'll be a king, but he won't live in a palace. He won't have lots of money. He'll be poor. He'll be a servant, but this king will heal the whole world. He'll be a hero. He'll fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies, but he won't have big armies. He won't fight with swords. He will make the blind see. He will make the lame leap like deer. He'll make everything the way it was always meant to be, but people will hate him. They won't listen to him. He will be like a lamb that will suffer and die. This is the secret rescue plan that we made from before the very beginning of the world. It's the only way to get you back, but he won't stay dead. I'll make him alive again. And one day when he comes back to rule forever, the mountains and the trees will dance and sing for joy. The earth will shout out loud. His fame will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Everything sad will come. Oh, Jesus storybook Bible. Everything sad will come untrue. Even death is going to die. He'll wipe away every tear. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him, watch for him, wait for him. He will come, I promise. And so let me just say this. In the midst of a low cost, low risk world, Jesus counted the cost and he didn't just risk, he gave his very life for you. That's who's calling you to follow. And it's absolutely worth it. It's not easy, but it's worth it. So don't buy into the lie and don't water down this truth. Would you choose to follow him, not out of effort, not because of merit, but under his grace. And so the application for today is this. What in your life, if you're being honest, is a competing priority with Christ? What is that? Is it a relationship that you've put too much stock in? Is it possessions? Is it self-interest? Is it anything else that you know has become the center or it's become higher than Christ himself? And you don't have to be shamed by it and you don't need to be condemned by it. You have the opportunity by his grace to simply hand that over to him and to say, I realize that you need to be at the center and I'm gonna give you these things. I'm gonna hold these things loose. I'm gonna give you my very family, my dearest, deepest, most loving relationships. I'm gonna give you the things that have meant so much to me because I've counted the cost and you're worth it. So what does it look like to have an honest conversation with God today? to confess where we need to confess, to repent and turn back to him where we need to do that, to be honest with him about where it's hard, where it's difficult, and ask us to meet him there. He is that good. He is that loving. He is that gracious. Jesus, thank you for your word. It's a challenging word, but it's a good word. May we receive it. May we not reject it. May we see the relationship, the love, and the grace in it, in your name, amen.